Join us to hear about current research, programs, and clinical practice improving the health of pregnant women, children, and adolescents in low and middle income countries around the world. This is the Talking Global and Maternal Child Health Podcast Series. Welcome to this episode of Talking Global Maternal and Child Health Podcast Series. I'm your host for this episode. My name's Dr. Sarah Benes. In this episode, I'll be interviewing three guests on the seriously neglected topic of global pediatric and adolescent tuberculosis, or TB for short. These three guests will explain the topic and what further work needs to be done to raise awareness of this vital issue. And the first guest joining me in this episode is Professor Ben Murray. So hello, so today we have Professor Ben Murray, who's a pediatric infectious disease specialist at the Children's Hospital at Westmead here in Sydney, joining us for the podcast. And he's an internationally renowned for his work on childhood and MDR-TB, multi-drug resistant TB. Ben has been a leading advocate in instigating World Health Organization and global action on tuberculosis control targets. And he's currently co-director of Sydney ID at the University of Sydney, where he holds an academic appointment. Ben, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to have you here to talk about pediatric and adolescent TB. Can you start us off by characterizing the scale of the pediatric TB epidemic, please? I should probably start, Sarah, by just reminding people of the scale of the TB epidemic on the whole. So tuberculosis is the number one infectious diseases killer on the planet. It was transiently dethroned by COVID, but we know that it has and will continue to be the leading infectious disease killer before and and after COVID. And if anything, the COVID disruption has greatly affected global TB control with expectations that it's put TB control progress back by at least 10 to 20 years. So there's a lot of catch up to do. On a global scale, we've got very accurate estimates for the total TB burden, probably one of the diseases with the best quantification of the disease burden because of reporting structures being in place in in all countries, reporting to WHO. So current estimates are that there's around 10 million new TB cases diagnosed every year. And of those, an estimated 1 million occurs in children under 15 years of age. There's a bit of a definition issue here around what do we count as pediatric tuberculosis? And These definitions will have changed over time, but for global counting purposes, children in the TB world are regarded as everyone younger than 15 years of age. There's a strong argument that we should break that down further. The group at highest risk are children under five, and most of the TB deaths occur in children under five years of age, and I'll get back to that in a second. Children between five and 10 are a subgroup that uh, requires separate counting because they have a disease profile that's very similar to young children, but their risk is lower. So all children under 10 tend to develop what we call childhood tuberculosis, or in the old days, they referred to this as primary tuberculosis, which mostly affects the lymph nodes in the chest, disseminated disease throughout the body. As children enter into adolescence from 10 years of age onwards, they start to develop adult type disease with cavities in the lung and they become infectious. That's an important distinction from an epidemiological perspective. Even though we are counting children as those under 15, the preference going forward is that we will count children separately in five-year age bands, that children under 10 will reflect 
the burden of pediatric tuberculosis, those between 10 and 20, so 10 to 19 years of age, essentially reflect adolescent tuberculosis. And then we have the 20 to 24, 25 year age group, which reflect young adults. And they are often in high burden countries, the group with the highest disease burden, the young adults. But they are also the people who are most likely to have young children in their household, you know, exposed to an infectious mom or an infectious dad. So in summary, I think the scale of the epidemic is now well quantified from a, an adult perspective. The pediatric estimates remain somewhat ballpark figures, but we've got a far better handle on the epidemic now than 10 years ago. And I should just say that until 2012, children were not counted. So if you look at any of the global TB reports until 2012, there were no child TB estimates. In fact, the Global TB Control Program didn't count or consider the pediatric disease burden until that point. So we've only got a decade of data now, but it shows that we've come a long way, but there are still major gaps to plug. Thank you, Ben. It's kind of an extraordinary and radical change from being essentially uncounted and invisible to not only being counted, but also a a sensitive recognition of how the type of disease and the age would affect quite significant implications epidemiologically as, as well as clinically. Part of it, I imagine, has been answered in the first part of your explanation, but given the volume and the gravity of the epidemic affecting children and adolescents who have acquired TB, why do we not hear more about it? It doesn't appear to get much airtime compared to many other conditions affecting children and adolescents. What's that about? I think it's partly driven by difficulties in diagnosing TB, as well as the way that the TB control approach has been set up. So let's just touch on the, the difficulties of diagnosing tuberculosis. I, I previously mentioned that children under five are really the group at highest risk of severe disease. They are also the group in whom establishing a confirmed diagnosis of tuberculosis is most problematic. You may know that until very recently, the main tool we had and the only tool in most developing countries to diagnose tuberculosis was looking at the sputum under the microscope and identifying the TB bacilli, which is what Robert Cox saw back in 1882 when he identified the TB bacillus as, as the cause of TB and you know, helped to define the germ theory of disease really with Pasteur at the time. But because we only had sputum microscopy as our diagnostic tool until very recently, we were unable to diagnose individuals who were unable to produce sputum. And young children cannot produce sputum. Children reflexively swallow their sputum. So if you are expected to provide a sputum specimen for diagnosis, there's no way that you can be evaluated if you're a child under five. Some children struggle to cough up to 10. So really above 10, we regard children as you know, very similar to adults in the sense that they've got similar disease profile and they can provide similar specimens. But those children under five, up to 10, we struggle to get the right specimen. And then in addition, even if we were to investigate a specimen with great effort, like in children who swallow their sputum, we can collect the gastric aspirate, so collect the, the stomach content to look if there's TB bacilli there. We rarely find the TB bacilli because children, if they develop TB, remember I previously referred to primary TB. It's not the term that we use anymore, but they develop predominantly lymph node disease, not the cavities that adults 
develop in their lung. The adult form of TB is associated with what we call a very high bacillary load. There's millions of organisms in one of those cavities and you cough it out. That's how the, the disease spreads within populations. But children who develop disease in their lymph nodes and don't have cavities, they don't cough out a lot of organisms. So even in their sputum that they swallow, that you can retrieve from their gastric aspirates, there's only few bacilli, and it's very hard to find them under the microscope. But now that we've got more sensitive tests, like PCR tests, the same tests that we are using for COVID detection, we are able to diagnose far more children with certain. But those tests were unavailable in developing country settings, really, until five, 10 years ago. So that's why it was very hard for high burden countries to really appreciate the disease burden. Recent estimates from TB endemic countries are that tuberculosis is probably a top 10 cause of under five mortality in TB endemic settings, but that recognition is only growing now. Most of those children were invisible because they are misclassified as pneumonia deaths, not only the WHO, but also the Johns Hopkins Global Disease Burden Surveys now acknowledge that there's a, a large number of children with tuberculosis counted among pneumonia deaths. There's a large percentage that are counted among meningitis deaths, because if you don't make a confirmed meningitis diagnosis, a child with TB meningitis will be classified as meningitis, and everyone assumes that's a bacterial meningitis or another bacteria. And then there's a large number of children with TB deaths that are classified as malnutrition deaths, but they look malnourished because they've got underlying TB disease. And that's true in many high burden settings that it's hard to differentiate unless you are able to do autopsies. There are few places that have been able to do autopsies. I think those, those studies in Zambia have shown that among children dying from pneumonia deaths in hospital, on autopsy, around 20% of them had undiagnosed tuberculosis on autopsy, even though they were recorded as pneumonia deaths. Interestingly, that ratio was even higher in HIV uninfected children compared to HIV infected children, because there's so many other causes that can make or lead to the death of HIV infected children. That was admittedly before antiretroviral treatment became available, but that was the first indication that it's a major contributor to deaths that we don't always appreciate. So then the second point of why it's invisible or has been invisible for such a long time is that TB control globally was led by public health physicians and adult physicians. If you look at TB purely from an epidemic perspective, it's clear that the epidemic is sustained by people who cough out the organism. That's why we were happy with our diagnostic tool in the past. We said sputum smear microscopy is a good way for us to detect the most infectious people. If we can treat them, we can prevent the spread of the epidemic. So children were the silent casualties. They weren't considered that important because they were not sustaining the epidemic. They were really just dead end hosts, even though it was a major preventable cause of death. Treating a child doesn't impact the epidemic. To reduce the epidemic, you have to treat infectious people and children are generally not infectious. So the broader trickle down argument at the time was, it's too hard to diagnose children. We don't have the tools. The best way to help children is to treat the adults because if you can make adults non-infectious, we protect the children. And that's why unfortunately children never featured really in the global TB response and the numbers that we reflect. Thank you, Ben. That's such a helpful explanation and overview. One of the things that often comes up around tuberculosis is the stigma that's attached to it, not only 
the individual or the household, but often the broader community conditions that might be contributing to some of the risks around acquiring TB. Do you think that the framing of stigma as being a sort of stigmatized condition that countries and governments don't want to have in their systems as well, do you think that might have had any impact on how much we hear about TB and particularly around pediatric and adolescent TB? I think stigma has played a, a major role and it's such a hard thing to know how best to deal with it. Now, there are many lessons learned from the HIV experience, but for instance, in South Africa, one of the major factors that reduced stigma was just making the shift from opt-in to opt-out permission for HIV testing. So by just normalizing HIV testing and normalizing the fact that everyone should know their HIV status, the stigma was greatly reduced in those initial years of everyone being afraid. On the TV side, I think a, a very important message that we should continue to emphasize to reduce stigma is that anyone can get TB. TB is airborne, so it's really exposure to infected air spaces that expose you to the organism, and no one has got any control over the air that they breathe. The other important factor is that tuberculosis is treatable. So it's important to be able to make the diagnosis. What has led to the stigma, I think, over many years is the undeniable correlation between disease hotspots and areas of poverty and inequality. Like many diseases, but TB is probably the prime exemplar, conditions of poverty are highly conducive to TB transmission. And because of that, in many communities, the association between tuberculosis and poverty and not only poor living standards but poor living prospects are readily made. Now in places like India, for instance, if you have tuberculosis, it's considered that your future life prospects are, are not as good. You're not a good um, life partner to have, for instance. In parts of Africa, the fact that you have TB is associated with poverty and dirt and that you come from a community that hasn't progressed. In, in parts of Asia, talking about tuberculosis also has a lot of political stigma because there's such a strong drive for countries to develop economically and to be seen as Asian tiger countries that are prosperous and growing and improving the living standards of their citizens, that the acknowledgement of tuberculosis as an ongoing problem to the minds of many politicians considered an acknowledgement of backwardness, an acknowledgement of a lack of progress. So all those things are contributing. Now, apart from that, the personal scale, the, the experiences of individual patients and how they feel within a community. And there are other people you know, better equipped than me to talk about that. But those personal experiences of patients can often also be a major barrier to treatment access or to diagnostic access. One of the things that's been really striking in listening to you has been actually that this is a moment of extraordinary progress and quite dramatic changes in pediatric and adolescent TB. And I wondered what, in brief, the kind of broad areas of focus there are going forward to continue this improvement. I should emphasize that there has been very committed effort over the last 10 years to increase not only the visibility of childhood tuberculosis, but also to find pragmatic solutions. It has been a struggle, but this year, in March 2022, and World TB Day is in March, WHO launched the first 
comprehensive evidence-based guidelines for child and adolescent tuberculosis that was accompanied by a very comprehensive operational handbook. So those provide the blueprint for what is the best evidence-based approaches to prevention, diagnosis, treatment, both treatment of drug susceptible and drug resistant tuberculosis, and awareness of all the, the broader societal factors that contribute to vulnerability and treatment response. So it's taken a while, but that is a major milestone. There's, there's a lot of ongoing effort to grow that visibility, to work with the Global Fund, for instance, to encourage and even force countries to include childhood tuberculosis in their Global Fund submissions. So in the past, countries could submit their plans for TB control, which the Global Fund in many countries support TB control activities. And there was no requirement to consider children. That's changed now. So countries will be forced in the new rounds of Global Fund application to indicate what are their priorities for childhood tuberculosis and what are they doing to serve children, which is a great advance. In addition, a lot of effort has gone into the development of better diagnostics. So we now have the expert ultra test, which is an optimized PCR test that maximizes sensitivity. It's it won't detect all children with TB, but it's a, a remarkable test compared to what we had. And it also not only detects TB, but can detect the presence of drug-resistant tuberculosis, because we now know that drug-resistant tuberculosis is transmitted within communities, and that means that children are as likely to get it as adults. The other very important advance that we can celebrate is the fact that we now have child-friendly drug formulations, which in the past wasn't available, or if it was available, it was available at cost. But the Global Drug Facility now has child-friendly water-dispersible tablets that can be dosed down to preterm infancy for both drug-susceptible and now for drug-resistant tuberculosis. For the new drugs, for bedaquiline, linazolid, some of these new agents that we are very excited about to have to treat drug-susceptible, uh, drug-resistant tuberculosis, they are now available in child-friendly formulations for the first time. So those tools are all coming together with the guidelines, I think, to really inaugurate a new era where we can do better. But there remain big challenges. I think the biggest challenge is what we call the, the prevention gap, where the best way to assist children with TB is to prevent them from getting TB in the first place. So our first line of defense for prevention is PCG vaccination. It's not 100% effective, but it, it provides a high level of protection against severe forms of TB, like TB meningitis, which is the most destructive form of tuberculosis. We had major interruptions in BCG supply over recent years, pre and during COVID. And that's essential to maintain those standard healthcare services and to make sure that in all TB endemic areas, children get TB uh, BCG vaccination delivered at birth. Now, in countries like PNG that has a very high TB burden, we still have very poor rates of BCG vaccination, which is probably the first line of action we need to get right to protect children. Then the second line of defense is preventive therapy. So this is a tablet. Unfortunately, it's not like you know, HIV preventive therapy where people take a single tablet. If you have TB infection, you have to take tablets for three months for preventive therapy. But we have very effective treatments now available. That's three months instead of six to nine months, which is what they were in the past, to prevent TB. But we're still not getting it to children who are at high risk. And these are children who are in households where 
adults have been diagnosed with infectious deviant. The classic example would be a young mother diagnosed with tuberculosis. If she's got three children at home, those children are at high risk of developing TB infection. And the best way to protect them against severe disease is to treat them with preventive therapy. In the past, TB programs had good systems to diagnose the mother and to provide her with directly observed therapy. But we had very poor systems to screen the household and to provide them with preventive therapy. So that's a big focus. There's absolutely no reason why we cannot do better. One of the major hurdles in the past has been that in developed countries, we screen all household contacts with a skin test and a chest x-ray. And the impression has been created, if you don't have access to a skin test and especially a chest x-ray, then you can't provide preventive therapy because you can't rule out disease. We know that's not necessary. We also know that in most parts of the world, children and families don't have access to x-ray. So to put that as a requirement for screening to be able to provide preventive therapy essentially says that we cannot provide preventive therapy. So there are now evidence-based, simple, symptom-based screening approaches, which anyone can do in any environment, where if a child is completely asymptomatic, but his mother has TB, you can provide them with preventive therapy there and then without any further test. Preventive therapy is cheap. It's well-tolerated. We hardly ever get any adverse events in children. So if there's one group where we can do this, it's in those young kids who are most vulnerable. So I think there's now better strategy. It's now for the first time part of the WHO evidence guideline and suggested approach and countries are now challenged by the Global Fund to implement this. So I think we will do better on prevention in the coming years. And then there's the other big gap, which is the detection gap. Uh, we've got good treatment, very effective treatment that's child friendly, but we're not getting the treatment to the children that needs it. Part of that detection gap is not only that we don't have good diagnostic tools. I've mentioned the expert ultra, which is a far better tool than what we've had in the past. But these tools are still only available within TV programs. They are not available at the coalface where children with a cough or where children with malnutrition present to the healthcare service, which is at the primary healthcare clinic. So primary healthcare clinics and the service provided to children are still very removed from the vertical TV program. And we need to find better ways that children with presumptive tuberculosis can access TB diagnostics and to grow the awareness of clinicians who are not working in the TB program, who are working in general maternal and child health, to think about TB as part of the differential diagnosis. And there's a lot of work happening at the moment to improve that awareness and the training of clinicians outside of the TB program, which is where previous interventions were mostly focused. Thank you so much, Ben. And thank you for your time and sharing some of your expertise with us. And thank you also for the role that you've played in initiating some of these dramatic changes and improvements in the way that we are approaching dealing with and recognizing and responding to pediatric and adolescent tuberculosis. Thanks. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you again, Professor Ben Murray, for joining us today. And the next guest I'll be interviewing is Dr. Julie Huan. Hi, so now I'd like to introduce Dr. Julie Huan. 
paediatric infectious disease specialist, currently a clinical research fellow in paediatric TB. And she's based in Vietnam at the Oxford Clinical Research University in Ho Chi Minh City, where she's doing her current work and where she's joining us from today. So hi, Julie. So you're working on TB meningitis in children and adolescents, which is one of the most severe manifestations of TB. Can you tell us a bit about the current outcomes for children and adolescents contracting TB meningitis, please? Sure, Sarah. Outcomes are unfortunately still very poor. This does vary depending on where the child lives. In Vietnam, where I'm currently based, the mortality rates are around about 15%, whilst mortality rates are as low as 4% in South Africa and even as high as 50% in India. But what we do know from systematic review and meta-analysis evaluating treatment outcomes in children with TB meningitis is that the global average mortality is around about 20%, meaning that one in five children with TB meningitis will die even on treatment, which is really quite an alarming number. And then when we look at those who survive, only one third will do so without long-term neurological sequelae, which means that two-thirds will suffer some form of disability which will affect the child's later development into schooling and their transition to adolescence. So it's really important to recognise that TB meningitis in children is often a long-lasting condition that not only has health impacts, but also considerable social impact on the child, family and community that the child lives within. Thanks, Julie. It's clearly a really devastating condition and needs some serious attention, not only to try to help further bring down those mortality rates, but as you say, to kind of mitigate the really appalling lifelong consequences of acquisition. So you're currently the project manager of the SURE trial, which is looking at TB meningitis with this group. Can you tell us about the specific focus of the trial? So I've been based in Vietnam, which is among the 30 countries with the highest burden of tuberculosis and a country which has very much a broad-based population where one quarter of the population are below the age of 14 years. And here in Vietnam, We've been conducting a phase three randomised controlled trial on treatment outcomes in children with TB meningitis. And this trial, called the SURE trial, as you mentioned, aims to answer two important questions. One is whether a shortened intensified TB drug regimen of six months is just as good as the 12-month standard regimen in achieving survival. And the second, whether aspirin compared to placebo improves neurodevelopmental outcome in children with TB meningitis. So this research is truly an international collaboration with study sites in Zambia, Zimbabwe, Uganda and India as well, all countries with high burden of tuberculosis. Sounds an amazing undertaking and I'm sure really challenging after the last few years particularly. How are you hoping this trial might make a difference to children and adolescents? Well, in addition to what I've already mentioned about potentially improving mortality, if we do discover that this shortened intensified drug regimen is just as good as the 12-month standard, this would reduce the risk of drug toxicity that's often associated with the TB drugs, improve adherence, 
and reduce the burden on families who often have to travel great distances to receive the TB treatment and the burden on the national TB programs having halved the treatment duration from 12 months to six months. And if we do find that high-dose aspirin compared to placebo does improve neurodevelopmental outcome in children with TB meningitis, then we would have potentially have a cheap, safe, and easily accessible drug, which could be potentially included in routine care. Wow. So it sounds like there are kind of multiple implications. And more broadly, what might that do for health systems as well as for pediatric research? For health systems, the trial will hopefully raise awareness and draw attention to the importance of diagnosing TB meningitis early in children ideally before brain damage occurs. We do know that the most important predictor of poor outcome is delayed diagnosis. So raising this awareness will at least put this disease at the forefront of the clinician's mind and with early diagnosis give the child the best chance of survival and doing so without disability. On a broader level, in terms of paediatric research, it has important significance in the global context. While paediatric trials in infectious diseases have existed for many years, and HIV trials being one of them, there have only ever been two trials evaluating TB drug therapy in paediatric TB meningitis, and Shaw is one of them. And what we've learned is that despite the challenges, paediatric trials are important. It's vital that we continue to include children of all ages in research. And this population carries a significant burden of infectious diseases. They have unique needs, metabolizing clear drugs differently, and have specific outcomes which can't be extrapolated from adults. So I think it's important to learn that these trials can be feasible in low and low middle income countries. And it's important to build on this momentum That was fantastic, Julie. Thank you so much again for your contribution. And the final contributor for this podcast is Patricia Mosobrodsky. So now I'd like to introduce Patricia Mosobrodsky, who's coming to the end of her qualitative PhD, where she's focused on the experiences of adolescents affected by TB in Zimbabwe, and particularly looked at the social dimensions of having TB. Last year, she also contributed to the World Health Organization Global Guidelines on Adolescent TB. Thanks so much for joining us, Patricia. Thank you so much for having me. So it sounds like you've done quite an unusual study, which is focused on listening to the voices of adolescents affected by TB. Can you tell us a bit about who you spoke to in your study and to give us some context, a bit more about the situation around adolescent TB in Zimbabwe? Sure. So as part of my study, I really focused on adolescents and young people. So that's the age defined as 10 to 24 years of age. And the study specifically looked at the physical, mental, and psychosocial aspects of these young people, as well as possible interventions to address their currently unmet needs. So Zimbabwe, you know, Zimbabwe carries a high burden of TB, but given standard reporting doesn't capture adolescent disaggregated data, the burden of TB um, in Zimbabwe is actually largely unknown. Right. So in many ways, adolescent TB both the presence of it as well as the consequences of it are kind of 
been broadly invisible. Can you tell us, therefore, like a bit about some of the key characteristics of their experiences that they talked about with you? Yeah, definitely. So young people, we know them to be a very unique demographic. They undergo this specific phase in life, which is quite critical in terms of lots of changes that are happening, whether it be, you know, physical, cognitive, emotional, social, or even economic. And so a lot of these experiences really determine their later life health and well-being. So the adolescents that I spoke with, they really talked about, you know, when they have TB, that it not only affects obviously their health in terms of the challenging disease symptoms and difficult treatment side effects, as well as mental health aspects, but also they really started to focus not just on the clinical aspects of disease, but also the social aspects of disease. They brought up lots of challenging experiences with stigma in the communities, for example. They are a highly social demographic. And so that aspect of discrimination largely affected them much more so than their other counterparts being children and adults. Young people also brought up the challenges in terms of being unable to attend school or work and how that affected their well-being. You know, they discussed how this was a big step back in their life and how emotionally difficult it was for them having to be behind a lot of their peers. Similarly, you know, it affected a lot of their relationships. They discussed how their relationships were affected not only with their families, but also friends and, and in communities, as I mentioned, with the largely discriminatory behavior towards people with TB and, and young people specifically with TB. And then lastly, you know, they talked about their adherence challenges with medication and their mental health aspects in terms of being isolated and having a disease at this young age when they feel it like they should have really good health. Thanks so much. You mentioned towards the end there about isolation. Can you tell us, were they isolating because that was a clinical requirement or was there something else going on there? That's a really good point to bring up. So largely, actually, from our participant group, they really discussed isolation, not just for infectious reasons mandated by their health system or their health providers, but also largely to, to a lot of the stigma and shame and guilt that they felt. They were really nervous and scared and fearful of what they had perhaps maybe because of that education piece, they weren't really quite aware of what they dealing with and, and how infectious it was, what the infectious window was. And so a lot of the time they actually would self-isolate. They would try to self-isolate so that they wouldn't give it on to their loved ones and their family members and their friends. And so potentially more than they actually needed to, that the kind of the socialization isolation was prolonged. That's That's really interesting and and really important to identify and address. And within your research, obviously, lots of challenges came up as articulated and explained by the adolescents. Were you also focused on identifying potential solutions and interventions that could help improve the situation for young people? The young people that we spoke with offered up many suggestions in terms of what would better their care. Some main concerns that they brought up was the diagnostic delay of actually just receiving a TB diagnosis. For a lot of these young people, they waited up to two years to know that they had TB. So that was certainly a really challenging aspect, having to deal with the disease symptoms for so long and the fear of what are they dealing with? What exactly do they have? And so they really thought that, you know, mass campaigns, education campaigns within schools, but also communities, but also large educating their healthcare providers. For these folks, they've 
often don't know or aren't aware of quite how susceptible adolescents are to TB. And so educating them to actually look out for that and have that as one of the criteria that they look at when, you know, an adolescent comes in with the symptoms for TB. So that was a big concern of theirs. Other concerns that they voiced were the lack of counseling when they first started their treatment. They didn't receive that much education as to what their treatment journey would look like. They discussed how that was really challenging aspect where they would information online or through their communities and, and often run into a lot of misinformation would only build up more fear of what they were dealing with. So in terms of actually having intensive counseling at treatment initiation could really mitigate those challenges that come up later. And they discussed a lot of other aspects in terms of having more youth-friendly services, focusing on privacy and confidentiality in their care, but also talked about how they don't really know that other people their age are struggling with the same diagnosis. They don't know that TB is prevalent in adolescent populations. And so they really hoped that there could be potential for peer support groups where they could come together and discuss the challenges that they're going through and, and have that emotional support. So yeah, they had a lot of really good insights on their care. Thanks so much. Really interesting to hear about. And I mentioned at the beginning of the segment that you contributed to the World Health Organization Global Guidelines on Adolescent TB last year. And I was wondering, given you've done this specific study with communities in Zimbabwe, how those findings kind of fit with broader global patterns about adolescents' needs. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. I think that's a really good point too. For the global guidelines, we were really trying to find data sets or literature from around the globe focused on adolescent TB. And the Zimbabwe findings really showcase that there is a pattern across adolescent populations across the globe. A lot of the concerns that were raised in Zimbabwe are pretty relevant and pretty similar to what was raised in other contexts. But however, <laughs> knowing that there is a lack of data across the globe, there was really paucity of literature, but also paucity of unpublished data that we could really seek to, or there is a paucity of data that we could use per the WHO guidelines. So I think it really showcased that there's an opportunity for us to prioritize adolescent TB. And I think the WHO global guidelines, I think are that first step in terms of really prioritization and that policy and awareness. Thank you so much, Patricia. It's been really fascinating and it really highlights the value of having young people at the center of interventions designed to support them and the, the value of listening to young people. Thank you for your work. It's been a pleasure to hear about it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Talking Global and Maternal Child Health. This podcast series is presented by the University of Sydney Global Maternal and Child Health Network. The copyright is owned by the University of Sydney. All rights reserved. No reproduction or use of this content without written consent of the University of Sydney.